Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good. Super awesome. That's a good answer. How y'all like those TVs? Pretty great, huh? And just so you know, uh, we did not get those to host a Super Bowl party next February. <clears throat> so Bruce or Jason or whoever might have a wild idea, it's not going to happen. Um, I also heard this morning that a rumor's already started that these are back there in case my sermon gets boring, you're going to throw up ESPN or something more exciting. <laughs> I don't like that idea either. So how many of y'all are excited that summer is here? Raise your hand. Yes, absolutely. If you're a teacher, your hand probably went up first, didn't it? It's good to have a break. Well, I know I just kind of barraged you with a lot of questions, didn't I? Another question. <laughs> but I did that in order to make a point. The answers you give me to the questions I ask tell me something about you. If the beginning of summer is really no different than the end of spring, then you're probably not a teacher. <laughs> if you have no idea what the Super Bowl is, you likely didn't grow up in the United States of America. <laughs> the questions that you, or the answers that you give to those questions always Give us new information. We, we learn from the answers to the questions we ask, which is why we often greet each other with questions, right? Hi, how are you? How's your week been? If you met somebody new this morning, you might have asked, so what brings you to Melanie Park? If they're a student, you might ask, so what are you studying? With each of the answers to the questions you ask, you learn something new about that person. Questions are a powerful tool for learning, which is also why con artists are so good at asking questions. I'm reading a book right now uh, called Ghost in the Wires. I wouldn't recommend it. It's not a real redeeming book, but it is a true story about one of the world's most wanted hackers, a guy by the name of Kevin Mitnick. And in this story, he talks about how he would gain access to very critical information by simply asking questions. He would learn enough about an organization to be able to speak some of their lingo. He would simply call in and say something like, Hi, I'm, uh, this is Bob Jones. I'm with Cerner. We're doing a security upgrade on the system, and I'm just calling to ensure that I have your correct access code. I have 12149. Is that correct? I know it's 63421. Okay, thank you, ma'am. We'll update the system. Appreciate it. He just got security access to the entire system by asking a question. And it happened over and over again. Questions are a powerful tool for learning. So this summer, we're going to look at the questions that Jesus asked in the New Testament. And I want you to know that this series was inspired by my favorite professor and author, Dr. Monica Norris. I actually have no idea who that is. I just know a good friend named Monica and what I know is that Monica and I share a similar curiosity about things we learn in the Bible. For example, why does an all-knowing God ask so many questions? Clearly, he's not trying to gain an understanding of things that are otherwise unknown to him. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. <laughs> Even in the New Testament, when we look at Jesus, we Know that he doesn't ask questions in order to, to learn something about others. More often, he asks questions so that others might learn something about him. 
Questions are a powerful tool for learning. They cause us to think. They demand a response. They reveal character. In the end, they help us learn. So before we go into our series this morning, let's just pray for our summer together. That as we look at the questions that Jesus asks, that there would be things that we would learn in our own hearts as well. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you, we do ask that you speak to our hearts. That the questions that you pose to the people that you interacted with would be ones that we would consider for ourselves. That we would answer in our own lives. And in doing so, may they reveal things in our own heart and how you are the source of hope, the source of healing. And that we would find that we learn things about you that are significant in our life. So, Father, as we spend this time together in your word, speak clearly to our hearts. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to John chapter 5. We're going to look at one of the questions Jesus asked in John chapter 5. And we're going to begin in verse 1. So I'd love for you to... Read along with me, beginning in verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and and stirred the waters. Whoever then was first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in and was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, to begin with, even though it's not identified, this Feast of the Jews is likely the Sabbath. That's a common term used to, not the Sabbath, the Passover. It's a common term used to describe the Passover. And so, if that's the case, and I believe it is, then that puts us in terms of chronology uh, where Jesus is celebrating his second Passover. So he's about uh, halfway through his three-year ministry before he's crucified. And, and as this is, miracle is being described, do you see how detailed John is as he dra- describes the location of this miracle? Look at verse 2 again. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. Bethesda in Hebrew means house of mercy. And John seems to be very detailed to make sure that we understand exactly what he's talking about. And I want to orient you to what he's describing. And this is really fun because when we went to Jerusalem uh, a few years ago, we actually saw this in person and it's fascinating. So let me kind of orient you. If you'll look there to the east on the right side of of the screen, you'll see the temple area. And up to the north of the temple area, you'll see the Sheep's Gate. As you pass through the Sheep's Gate, you'll see it's entitled there Sheep's Pools. It's another name for Bethesda. It's the House of Mercy. And then you'll see kind of an open area. The reason this is oriented like this is because when people would come for Passover, they would be bringing animals for sacrifice. And when they did, they would come in through this eastern gate, hang a right, go through the Sheep's Gate, The reason it was called that is because they had sheep for sacrifice. They would come into that open area, and that's where they would be stored as they wait the sacrifice. 
And then after having dropped those sheep off, they would go to these two pools at the pools of Bethesda. Now, in that same area, this is what it looks like today. These pools have actually been excavated, and it's really hard to be oriented to this, so hang on with me, and we'll see it a little clearer here in a little bit. But this little passageway through the middle is a dividing wall between a northern and a southern pool. And one of the things I want you to notice from this picture is how deep these are, right? Well, if you'll notice here, along the pools of Bethesda, you'll see these staircases with these kind of landing platforms. And that's because the depths of those pools would raise and lower based on the supply of water, okay? And so depending on what the level was, they would have differing accesses into these pools. This is a great picture of kind of an artist's depiction of what the pools of Bethesda might have looked like during the time of Christ. Now, there are several interesting facts about these pools. John says there's five porticos, and I want you to understand why he says that. Because what he's describing are the four exterior walls of the rectangle, and then the one right down the middle, that makes five. What's happening here, these are actually two pools separated by a wall in between them, and that wall is actually a dam. Because the northern pool is intended to be like a reservoir. It stores water. And then in that dam, in that middle portico, down towards the bottom of the dam, there's a gate that allows water to pass from that northern pool into the southern pool. Now, you'll remember in that southern pool from that artist's depiction, people were washing. That's because this southern pool is what's called a mikvah, a Jewish mikvah. It was a place that they would ritually wash in order to be ritually clean before entering the temple area. And when you go to the temple mount, they're all over the place. On the side of Solomon's steps up to the temple area, I bet there's 30 mikvahs that allowed people to ritually be clean before they entered the temple area. And that's what's happening here. So... As you might expect, this was a very popular gathering place. People were coming in, dropping off their animals, washing to be clean before entering the temple area. And because this was such a gathering place, you would also not be surprised to find those who were sick and infirmed looking for help, begging for alms. That's why it says in verse 3, there lay a multitude who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And then verse 4 goes on to explain a a really curious belief in the water and its healing power. Now, it may have been stirred by an angel. I personally don't believe that's the case. In fact, in your Bible, some of you may have brackets around verse 4, and that's because it's not found in the earliest manuscripts. But someone along the way felt like it was important information to include it. It was a common belief, which doesn't necessarily mean the belief was true. Because it doesn't seem to line up, in my mind, with the character of God. Saying that the first in is the one who gets healed, as if you earn your healing. Does that sound like a God of grace? I don't think so. So as I've thought through this, I have a theory. This is my theory, okay? So take it for what it's worth. It is not gospel. It's simply my opinion as I put some of these pieces together. And here's what I think is going on. I think there's a natural phenomenon that is occurring that is being given some divine attributes. And so what's happening, I believe, is you remember that there's a gate in that portico down the middle 
that allows access of water into the, from the northern pool into the southern pool. And every time that gate's open and that water flows through, what's going to happen in that southern pool? The water's going to be stirred because the water has come in from that northern pool. The other thing that's interesting is that right alongside the pool of Bethesda, in that Temple Mount area, are a number of Roman pools dedicated to the god Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing. So the Romans believed that their pools had healing water. So I think it's very possible that there's a synchronization, synchronization of these two belief systems that gave the idea that the waters in the pool of Bethesda had healing properties. And think about it. If you're desperate, you'll believe anything. And, and that's what seems to be happening here. These are people who are desperate for healing. These are people, as we see, who have no hope. And this is what their hope is based on. So look at verse 5. A certain man who was there who had been 38 years in his sickness, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? I want you to notice that Jesus knows about this man before ever meeting this man. And he's there specifically for that man. Because it says that he went for a certain man. And even when Jesus approached this man, he knew that he had been there a long time. 38 years, to be exact. And this was the man Jesus wanted to see. And so he approaches him. And he asks an interesting question. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? That's an interesting question. Don't you think he wouldn't be there if he didn't want to be healed? So the answer, and at least in our mind, seems to be very obvious. Yes, I want to be healed. But my question to you is, is Jesus asking this question to find something out about this man? Or does he want this man to find something out about him? Because that's not the answer that the man gave to Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Well, arise, take up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well, took up his pallet, and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. You see, the man did not say yes because he did not believe yes was an option. The only way yes would happen is if someone helped him. And he had been there for 38 years, long enough to prove that wasn't going to happen. He actually says that he's gotten to the water before. So he has some way to move, but never in time for the healing to occur if it was ever even possible to begin with. So what do we learn from this man's answer to the question Jesus asked? What do we learn? We learn that he has no hope. He did not say yes. 
because he did not believe yes was an option. So without ever identifying himself, this man has no idea who Jesus is. Jesus hasn't told him about his mission and his reason for approaching him. He simply tells the man, well, then arise. Take up your pallet and walk. And instantly, the man is healed and walks away. And please, don't miss the magnitude of this miracle. He's been there lame for 38 years, which means his muscles have atrophied to where they're even hardly seen. He's skin and bones. So the fact that he could actually stand up on his own strength is a miracle in and of itself. And then to have the balance and coordination to walk is a miracle in and of itself. And then to put a pallet on your back and to carry that pallet is an amazing miracle in and of itself. Don't miss the magnitude of what just happened. And yet, Here he is, even knowing who's healed him. Look at how the story continues in verse 10. Therefore, the Jews were saying to him, who was cured? It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, take up your pallet and walk. So one of the things that I want you to notice here is that this man has already learned something about Jesus, not even knowing who he is. He knows that Jesus sought him out. He knows that Jesus exposed his need. And then he knows that Jesus has brought healing to his life. He doesn't know who he is, but he understands the miracle of what he's done. He understands that he didn't need healing water. He needed Jesus. He just doesn't know who Jesus is yet. Look how the story continues. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your pallet and walk? But he who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a cloud in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him, the man who was healed, in the temple and said to him, behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. So what could be worse than living in hopelessness for 38 years? How about living in hopelessness for all eternity? That's the point that Jesus is trying to make. I think the fact that this man was found in the temple is interesting for two reasons. One is, it's interesting that the man is in the temple when he could be anywhere. He's just been healed after being lame for 38 years, and yet he goes to the temple which tells me he's likely there to give some praise to God and maybe even ask for the forgiveness of sins now that he has been restored to good health. But it's also interesting that Jesus finds him at the temple. I want you to know that this is not a coincidence any more than the first interaction. Jesus finds him because he's looking for him and he wants to have an audience with this man. Jesus is not only the source of physical healing. He wants this man to understand. He's the source of spiritual healing as well. By telling this man not to sin anymore, he's just exposed the man's spiritual disease. 
he needs healing now just as much as he did back at the pool. What Jesus wants this man to learn is that his hopeless condition has not changed. And like before, Jesus is the only one who can bring healing to his life. Look at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself to be equal with God. Now, remember, I told you that this is fairly early in Jesus' ministry. He hadn't identified himself with any great clarity to the masses. And so there's some confusion as to who Jesus is. And so he uses this opportunity to identify himself. The religious leaders were complaining because the instructions that Jesus gave the man to take up his pallet and walk broke the religious rules of the day. See, rabbinic law prevented the people from carrying things on the Sabbath in order to keep the Sabbath holy. You could carry things in your home, just doing things, but you couldn't carry it from one place to another or it would break the Sabbath. Now, it's important to know that this is not a stipulation that's outlined in the Mosaic law in terms of what's found in the Old Testament and how to keep the Sabbath holy. This was one of, get this, 1,500 rules that the Jews came up with in order to protect just this one law to keep the Sabbath holy. What's interesting is the strict observation that we see here still exists in Orthodox Jews to this day. I've told you the story of the rabbi from Jerusalem who was in Lubbock receiving health care for his daughter. They were at the hospital when I was there. And he and I had a chance to get to know one another. Enjoyed that very much. A couple of things that were interesting is he used our therapy pool as a mikvah for ritual bathing. When we would go visit him for treatment or his daughter in that room, we would have to turn on the lights. Because according to the modern evolution of the rabbinic law, turning on the light is considered to be work. So they couldn't do it. That's why when you go to Jerusalem on the Sabbath and you take an elevator, it will stop on every single floor. Because to push the button on a certain floor would be work. So that law, that understanding still exists to this day. And that strict observation has made them spiritually blind. They missed the fact that this man who's been lame for 38 years has just been miraculously healed. They were so concerned about keeping their tradition that they lost sight of caring for people. So Jesus takes the opportunity to identify himself in a most interesting way. He says, my father is working until now and I myself am working. Now this is huge. What Jesus said is remarkable because the Jews had a very clear understanding that the only one who did not work on the Sabbath was God himself. Because if God stopped working, the world would literally fall apart. To their credit, 
They had a very clear view of the sovereignty of God's control. And so when Jesus claims to have the very same prerogative, what is he saying about himself? He's saying, I am God. This becomes even more explicit as he claims God to be Father. Because in that culture, the Father and the Son were equal. That's why birthrights and firstborn were so significant to the Jewish culture. Because what belongs to one belongs to the other. What is true of one is true of the other. So when Jesus claims that like his father, he too works on the Sabbath, the implication is clear and explicit in the verse when they said he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And here's something I want you to notice. The understanding is clear. And Jesus doesn't deny it. He goes on to affirm it. Look at verse 19. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things, and he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Instead of denying their accusations, Jesus actually affirms them. He's telling that man who is healed, who is now in that audience, along with those religious leaders and everybody else that has gathered, that whatever the Father does, I do also. Our actions are equal. In fact, our love is equal. That love of the Father is the motivation of my ministry. And probably the most significant thing at all, he says that he has power equal to that of God. See, the Jews knew only God has the power to bring life, much less bring the dead to life. And yet Jesus is saying, I possess the very same power. It is crystal clear in the ears of the audience that he is speaking to that day that he is saying, I am God incarnate. That's who I am. So as we think about the significance of what just took place at the pool of Bethesda, I want us to consider that question in our own lives. So what if Jesus were to come to you and he were to ask you, do you want to be healed? How would you answer? I think there are places in all of our lives that need healing. And so how would you answer the question? I, I think there's a couple of obstacles that might stand in our way, and I want us to identify those. One of the obstacles is this. Not realizing you're sick. If sin is not that big of a deal, then Jesus is not all that important. The greater your awareness of sin, the greater your need for a Savior. You can talk about religion and philosophy and all those things all day long. But at the end of the day, what you and I need most is Jesus. Because He is the only answer to the problem of our sin. This certainly applies 
to our decision to trust in Christ, to, to believe in what he accomplished on the cross. But it doesn't stop there. In fact, I would even say that we don't need Jesus any less after we become a Christian than we did when we were lost. Think about the song that we sing sometimes around here. Lord, I need you. Every hour, every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. See, that's someone who understands what it means to walk with Christ. The question is, do those words describe your walk with Christ? Do you live with an awareness of your dependence upon him? Some of you may hear that and think, well, yeah, I think so. What does that look like? Well, do you hunger and thirst for God's word? Because it's the source of life for your soul. It's the guidance of your path. It is the hope and promises. Do you hunger and thirst for God's word? Do you interact with people in this room beyond this hour? Or are these the only conversations that you'll have? Do you have a heart for the lost? To the point that you'd be willing, like sweet Claire, to put aside the beginning of her career to go serve the needs of those halfway around the world who don't know Christ? Are you looking for opportunities to serve the needs of others is more important than your own? Or do you look at that bulletin week after week and say, you know, I just don't have time for that? Do those words describe your walk with Christ? The first obstacle is not recognizing our sin. And one of the ways that that's made evident is we just carry on life as if we don't need him. The second obstacle is not wanting to be healed. You may hear everything I've said this morning and agree with every word of it. And yet, when you walk out of this place, your routine in life looks no different than it did the week before. You'll find your Bible next Sunday because you know where it'll be, where you lay it down when you get home today. Serving the needs of others takes way too much time from the things that we often want to do. Look, here's something I want you to hear from our pastor this morning. I want you to hear how intentional Jesus was in pursuing a certain man. He was looking for him. Because in his question, he wanted that man to learn something about who he is. In hopes that he would trust in him. And I want you to understand that the very same intention that guys... God has towards that man, he has towards you and I. He's inviting us to something better. Yes, oftentimes being in his presence exposes our need, and that's a good thing. Because when that's exposed, there is always an invitation to receive healing and hope through his promises. Jesus has the power to restore and redeem marriages, families, friendships, and our lives that sometimes feel hopeless. It's as true today as it was at the Pool of Bethesda. 
And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make. So what is your answer? What are the places in your life where you need to be healed? Let me encourage you this week to consider that question, to actually examine your heart, to be still and quiet before the Lord just long enough for Him to peel back some of the layers and show you some of the crippling beliefs that cause you to stumble. It doesn't matter how long you've walked with Christ. There are always places where we can grow in Christ and be faithful in our desire to follow Him. So that our walk really does increasingly look like we are dependent upon Him. Because we are. The only difference between where I am today and where I was as a new Christian is I understand now how much more I need Him than I ever have. And I expect that when I sit in that pew 20, 30 years from now, should that be the Lord's will, I'll feel that even more. Is that right, Miss Courtney? Absolutely it is. Every hour I need you. My righteousness, my one defense, my only hope. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the question. Because it helps expose our need. And it's easy in this life in which we live when we have so much available to us that we can convince ourselves that we're doing pretty good that we can navigate life on our own, that we have been successful in our jobs and our careers. Our family seems to be doing good, and our marriage is clicking along. So we can just stay the course. And yet, you're still pursuing each and every one of us, and you're still asking the question, do you want to be healed? Are there places in your life that need to be restored, that need to be redeemed? Are there crippling beliefs that cause us to stumble? Where do we need to be set free? Father, this week, I pray that each and every one of us would come to you with a sincere heart, that we would sit still and quiet long enough to consider that question and the ways in which you would want to speak to our hearts so that we may be healed, that we may be restored, that we may be closer in our walk with you so that we can see the fruit of your Spirit's work in our lives through our love for others and our worship of you. We pray this in your name. Amen.